It is a great privilege, a great honor to be standing before you once again. Uh, A privilege because, and also a humbling uh, privilege because standing before you on on the receiving end of so much love and and so much care, uh, we are just so encouraged and and blessed, as as Pastor Andrew alluded to this morning, to be a part of this body. Uh, Again, to be on the receiving end of so many encouraging words, uh, love and care, uh, over and over, and that really does extend back uh, 20 years or so. So it is a great privilege uh, to be here with you, serving together with you, and, and we really look forward to being a part of this team, uh, serving Christ together uh, for His purpose, for His name to be glorified, for His gospel to be declared and, and spread, because He is worth it. Uh, So it's a great honor uh, for me to be here. It's also a great honor and privilege uh, and humbling as well to be this morning sharing God's Word with you uh, because I feel the weight of the task of handling God's Word accurately, of not sharing my own things, uh, my own agenda. I feel the weight uh, every time I I share God's word, it comes with fear and trembling because I want to get it right, because it's the power of God unto salvation. This gospel message, this word of his which has authority, and as we come to it this morning, I really do pray that God would use this time to draw our hearts to Christ as we go through this life full of difficulties suffering, trials, hardships, and look at a passage of Scripture to encourage our hearts and to bring us quickly to Christ. As you, I hope you have your Bibles with you as you open up to 1 Peter. Um, the reason I say I hope you have your, your Bible with you because it will be easier, I think, if you can see the text in front of you and go through this, whether that be in book format or digital format, anything will work as long as it's God's Word in front of you as we go through this passage in First Peter. As you turn there, I want to just share a quick quote with you, a little bit of an illustration. Um, classic novel, Victor Hugo, Hunchback of Notre Dame. There's a moment in the story, a very pivotal moment, when this grossly disfigured Quasimodo sees the beautiful gypsy girl Esmeralda for the very first time. He says, gazing on her, never have I seen my ugliness as in this present moment when I compare myself to you and your beauty. There are many different angles we could take on this quote, very pivotal again in the story. We could say it's the ugliness of my own sin. As I look at Christ, I look at the glory of the gospel I will never see my ugliness more than at that very moment because there's no comparison. But we could also bring this into this life of ugliness, this sin-broken world that we live in, my messy trials, my suffering, my loss, and, and the grief that we all go through. And we could say the same thing. Never have I seen the ugliness of sin and the brokenness that it brings than right now in trials, 
and in suffering, when I compare myself and my circumstances to the beauty of Christ and to the glory of the gospel. So this morning, together with you, I want us to gaze upon that beauty. Uh, The bride of Christ comes beneath his word here to be strengthened in the love of Christ in a way that our, our hope and our strength will be renewed. Why is that important? I think it's important for all of us because if we're honest, we would come and say that many of us are struggling, many of us are weighed down, uh, maybe even some of us has, have lost sight of that hope that we have because we have been in this darkness of despair for so long. Or maybe just simply right now, the mountain before us is just so big, it's casting a dark shadow over our life every day. So today, today we're, we're gathered as community, right? This, this walk of endurance is done in community. And as I look across, I see mothers and fathers, I see grandfathers, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, and we're all heavy with concerns, and we're all in the need of great hope. Because so many days our hope is waning. And we have one need, Christ. To gaze upon his beauty through his word to be renewed. That Christ alone would become again our treasure, because that affects everything. So let's read uh, a few verses here from First Peter, and then we're going to walk through this. First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start actually by reading in verse 3 through verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by, by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of of your souls. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, your word that you have given us, have given your church, it is a great and glorious text in the midst of a very important context as you moved in Peter to write these words, to pen these words to a church who is scattered under persecution. These are very important words for them. They were, of course, and as well for us to bring us to the great treasure that we have in our salvation and apply that to our lives of this walk as pilgrims, as we walk in community together. Lord, I ask that you would powerfully work through your word this morning 
by your Holy Spirit and bring us to that point of gazing on the beauty of Christ, seeing him as our treasure, and Lord, that you would gird us up and give us hope and strength to carry on. It's by your Spirit that you will do this, and we ask for you to do your great work in us this morning. For the praise and glory of Christ, we pray these things in his name. Amen. So this morning, the big idea, I'll just say this right now, where we're going with this is what I believe I see in this passage, and really, in, in fact, in First Peter, is that God keeps our inheritance for us, and he keeps us for our inheritance. God's power seen through indicatives of the gospel, I'm going to explain that, sustains us to endure through suffering as we wait for our imperishable inheritance with an unwavering living hope. For Peter's readers, as well for us, it answers this question of us being pilgrims on the way. I see his great work in the past. I know his promise in the future, but what about right now? It's the already not yet dilemma. Already seated in the heavens with Christ, but we're not there yet. Already saved by grace, but we haven't reached that final point of exaltation and glorification. And sometimes it doesn't feel true. It doesn't look true. In fact, it looks like everything is against us in reaching that end. Peter's flurry of indicatives centers our mind on truth and sets our affections on Christ. What do I mean by indicatives? Just real quick, um, last week, in fact, we covered the introduction of this in ABF hour in my class. We're going to continue that in the next two weeks. Indicatives, very simply, are stated truths. It's a way of just stating the truth of something that does not change. And our life, our salvation, is based on indicatives of what Christ has already done for us, as well as what he has in store for us in the future. Indicatives, declared statements. So often we look at Scripture and we read the imperatives, and we think we've got to do this and this and this, when Christ has already said, it is finished. An indicative. Gospel indicatives are the benefits or the blessings that we already have now in Christ. And we know that God says, uh, the Apostle Paul says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens through Christ. Every spiritual blessing. So Peter's indicatives here center our minds on truth and I believe put in motion our affections towards Christ. So as we look at this passage and walk through it a little bit, um, I pray that God would show us the beauty of our salvation as we gaze on Christ through the glory of the gospel, understanding again the context. Of course, Peter is written uh, during this time of persecution, during Nero's reign, uh, to scattered Christians. Overall theme, perseverance through suffering. Peter writes to encourage the believers to remain 
faithful, and he brings them to Christ, their ultimate example, but also their ultimate source to endure as they look on and cherish the one who suffered for them and then entered into glory. A sentence that might summarize 1 Peter would be, suffering comes before exaltation. That's not a message that we usually like to hear. That is not usually the message that we even share as we share the gospel presentation. How often do we say, believe on Christ, expect suffering? It's better to leave that part out, right? We so often don't hear about that. We don't talk about suffering. We don't talk about the cost of following Christ, the earthly cost of following Christ. And it, in fact, encourages or I think unknowingly encourages this idea of the prosperity gospel, that you come to Christ and everything gets better. That's just not true. On this earth that we walk in, it does not always get better. Very rarely does it get better. Eternity, yes, so much better. No comparison. So Peter's intent here is not to set up this false paradigm that, hey, Suffering is going to go away. You'll be fine. His intent and, and why he includes these expansive words that we just read and we're going to walk through about their salvation and their inheritance as he gives no commandments here. In fact, in the first 12 verses of this letter, no demands, no requirements, no imperatives, no direct commands. He is not telling his readers what to do, at least not yet. But he's telling them what God has done, who he is, what they have, who they are, and what they need to know to endure. He's laying this foundation of indicatives, true statements about their salvation and about their eternal inheritance. Peter, again, not yet, is not exhorting them. He's exalting them. And he's calling them into that same spirit of exalting Christ. And he wastes no time. He says here in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His aim is to move his readers, including us here now, to bless God. But he assumes it here. uh, That we'll actually join in to this doxology to bless God because he does not actually give an imperative here. There's no verb in this verse 3. Simply, the text reads, Blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In our English translations, we have words inputted, uh, inserted in there, to be or is. Uh, Blessed is the God or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't command them to bless him. It's an adjective. He is saying God is blessed. God is praiseworthy. He is the one worthy to be praised. And then Peter goes on with a string of reasons why he is praiseworthy. To show his readers again that God is the greatest value, the greatest treasure. Again, I'll go back to this context. In the midst of suffering on, in fact, the precipice of suffering that will intensify for the church here that is already scattered. They have a God full of mercy, full of power to keep them, to guard them, and knowing that, believing that, 
will result in a walk of faith, joy, even while in the battle of the trenches. So Peter's line of reasoning uh, is what we're going to look at here this morning. In a very long, run-on sentence, verses 3 through 12. Just like the Apostle Paul, he loves to go on in these Greek grammar, massively packed, grand way to express his subject, which is salvation. If you were to boil it down, God caused us to be born again or born anew. Peter provides us through this grand sentence with the source of our life as well as the result, all bringing us to the conclusion that God is praiseworthy. He is worth even a life of difficulties, a life of suffering. Blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is praiseworthy. Peter supports this through his doxology. His line of reasoning is to show the source of our salvation as well as the result of our salvation through these indicatives. So the source of our salvation in verses, well, really one through three, we're going to start by seeing that it's both according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again, the source being God and the source being according to his great mercy. In fact, let me read just verses one through three because he says here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. I'm not even going to unpack that, <laughs> that word, but we could. We could spend much more time here. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ, and the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born anew. The triune God, our triune God is the source of our salvation. And right away, Peter shows the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, the work of the Son. According to his great mercy, God's unmerited favor towards sinners in their hopeless condition. Just like Quasimodo, I have never seen the ugliness of myself more than in this present moment as I look at the beauty for our context of Christ, of the gospel. Deserving of eternal wrath, God by his mercy sees fit to rescue us, to change us that he alone would be praised. He caused us to be born anew, born again into God's family, receiving a new nature, a new heart, a new position. Uh, interesting, this anew or uh, born again, um, the Greek verb only shows it twice in the New Testament, both times by Peter, both times in this chapter. He says again in verse 23, uh, the second time that we see this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So our triune God is the initiator of our salvation, and Peter is going to go through this letter and say, in fact, he's the sustainer and the one who will complete it. 
God's initiative, his manifestation of grace to breathe life into dead bones. This is how Peter's line of reasoning begins. As he shows that God is praiseworthy, he reminds the church that the source of their salvation is the triune God. And it's according to mercy. Then he's going to launch into these benefits of salvation. Again, this is the, this is the continuation of this run-on sentence, the benefits of our salvation. Uh, I'm going to organize this by these three prepositional phrases marked out by the Greek prepositions. Born again to a living hope, born again to an inheritance, and born again for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the first one, born again to a living hope, we see here in verse 3, a living hope because of our living Savior. It's all based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we were to read uh, further on in, in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for your sake, who, this is Christ, through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. He is risen, conquering sin and death. He is the anchor of our hope. And it's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not even a dead-end hope because he goes on living. He goes on working for us as he intercedes for the elect. So a believer's hope is as certain and as sure as the fact that Christ is alive. Peter, interestingly, uses this word living six times uh, through just this letter alone. Here, he's talking about a living hope. Uh, if we were to read verse 23, we just read that living word that regenerates us. He uh, uses that word living. Then he says that Christ is the living stone rejected, but we are now living stones. He's, he says that in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The gospel was preached to us once dead that we might be in life or might be alive in the spirit he says that in, verse, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Our living hope is real as opposed to deceptive, empty, a lie that often the world's hope is based on. It's a false hope. It's deception. It's empty. It's false. But our living hope is real, as real as our living hope. Savior. So we are born again. This is again the benefits of our salvation. God the Father, God the triune God, God Father, Spirit, and Son is the source of this salvation, is by His mercy. And then this very first benefit of our salvation is that we are born again to a living hope. This would already be very encouraging to the readers of Peter's letter under suffering, under persecution, that they would know they have a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That they would know that their hope is certain and sure. That they would know that their hope is real. It's not a lie. It's not empty. 
These are indicatives of the gospel. True statements. You have a living hope. It's one of these benefits of salvation that Peter touches on. The very next one is that they are born again to an inheritance. So a living hope in what would be the question that a reader might ask or a listener might ask as they hear these words. A living hope to what? Here, Peter says, you are born again to an inheritance. And then he uses three words to describe this inheritance. Imperishable or incorruptible, undefiled, where it would never spoil, unpolluted, without stain, and then unfading. It will never fade. It will never wither. It will not wilt. This is an an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Uh, I am not very good at alliteration, and I, I wonder sometimes why pastors will do this, but guess what? Peter uses alliteration here in the Greek. Amazing. Three words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Every, every word starts with an A and it ends with tos. So it would sound very beautiful to a, a listener here. Aftatos, amia antos, and amarantos. It's all Greek to me, right? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And he goes on to say in verse 4, having been kept for you in heaven. It's God who is keeping this inheritance for his church, for the elect. They are born again to a living hope, and that living hope is in something. It's in this inheritance, heirs of Christ, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. All present tense words, it's all stored up for us. It's all being kept for us by the power of God. The permanence of our inheritance is secure. It's set, and it's kept by the power of God. These are benefits. These are indicatives, gospel indicatives of our salvation. The third thing here, this prepositional phrase, again, from the preposition uh, here for, in our translation, we are born again for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It will be fully realized. The consummation, the ultimate completion of our salvation is coming. As Pastor Jim says so often, which I appreciate, a better day is coming. It's not today. It's probably not tomorrow. But a better day is coming. We shouldn't be trying to make this earth, this life, to be heaven. This is not the end. A better day is coming. We are born again to a living hope. We are born again to this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance born again for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If I were to unravel this long sentence, I might say it like this. Peter blesses the Father for the new birth he grants his people, in verse 3, which leads to their majestic hope of final salvation. 
this expectation of final salvation leads them, leads us to rejoice in spite of suffering in that final day of Jesus Christ. This very Jesus they both love and trust while they rejoice and await that final day of salvation. What do we do with a text like this? Clearly, Peter is setting up that God is at the center of all of these benefits. He is great in mercy. He causes us to be born again. He gives us a living hope. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead to secure that living hope and that inheritance that is indestructible, undefiled, and will never fade. And God is the one keeping that inheritance so that it will never perish, soil, or fade. What do we do with this? I think for the believer then, in Peter's day, in the midst of suffering, they would ask a question that very, very well might be the same question that many of us might ask now. Where is God? I see him in the past. I I love that. But where is he right now? In my trial, in my suffering, in my problems, in these mountains that are too big for me to overcome, in my flesh, where is God now? What about that time in between our new birth and this consummation of our final salvation? What about the temptations, the pressures? the stresses, the weariness, and for many in the global church, the persecution, the frustrations, the suffering, the confusion, the perplexity of life and and fear and the traps that we think that we're in or the traps that we are in and facing today. Where is God now? Present tense. I see the past. I, I can... Glory in those benefits of my salvation, but it doesn't feel that great right now. It doesn't look that great. And as I said before, everything looks like it's against me or it's against reaching that final end. I think Peter's readers had no doubt were thinking this very same thing in the midst of suffering and as Peter even warns them that more is probably coming. And many of us are in that same place today. Peter does not leave this question unanswered. Uh, He doesn't even leave it implicit, hidden. Well, that's for you to figure out. I've given you all this information. You need to figure the rest out. That's not what Peter does. He makes this answer very clear and I believe very powerful in verse 5. We're going to return there. I I, I skipped over it for a purpose of reaching it here now. In fact, verse 3 through 5 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept for you in heaven. Now listen to what he says. Who, this is us, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. 
we are protected, guarded by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Shielded by God's power. This is a military term used to refer to a garrison within a city. Guarded, shielded, protected, kept. What greater hope could there be for those who are undergoing persecution than the knowledge that God's power guards them, keeps them, protects them, shields them, to preserve them for an inheritance of salvation that will be completely revealed to them in God's presence. This is very real truth that we can latch on to. And I will tell you that we have, by God's grace, walked through this with people who are suffering, who are under persecution in a very real way. And they asked us this question all the time. They kept going back to this, where is God right now? You're telling us about this gospel. You're, you're telling us about the salvation that we have in Christ, but I don't see it. Everything is against us. Our own family, maybe my own husband, beats me because he doesn't want me to go to these meetings. My children are not allowed to go and and listen to these stories of Jesus. I can't find work because I say I'm a Christ follower. Very real stuff. And the question that it always came back to, in sickness, in difficulties, the list just went on and on. Well, where is God now? This doesn't make any sense. If I'm a follower of Christ, everything should be okay. We latch on to that idea. Everything here should be fine because I'm a believer. When in fact, we are told that no, we will suffer. Expect suffering. And here Peter lays this foundation as they are suffering in the midst of these trials for a purpose. To show them that we're not just talking about God in the past and what he's done. We're not just talking about what God is going to do in the future in what he secures, but we're talking about right now. We are protected, guarded by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why does he do that? To preserve them. To give them endurance. To point them, direct them to the present working of God's grace to keep them. To guard them. To protect them. Supreme power, omniscience, omnipotence, sovereignty, not only to keep the inheritance, but also to keep us for the inheritance. That's what God is up to. He didn't just complete everything in the past, fix everything, arrange everything for the future, and say, sit back and say, I hope they make it. It's going to be hard. 
but I hope they make it. That's not what God is doing. He is securing the very fact that we will make it. He's keeping us, guarding us, and protecting us. We are kept by God. So where is he now? He's keeping us. He's shielding us. He's protecting us. He is causing us to have endurance. He is sustaining us in this journey. He is sustaining us. No one can steal the Christian's inheritance and no one can disqualify him from receiving it. The power of God is always much bigger than we can comprehend. So therefore, as believers, we are being, present tense, guarded, protected, kept by the power of God to carry us through these temporary trials and suffering. God sees to our endurance. He sees to our steadfastness by his own power. Why would that be? I have none. I can't do that. I can't keep myself from my inheritance. I can't keep my inheritance for me. It's all by God's power to carry us through these temporary trials and suffering so that that final place of salvation will result in the praise and glory of his name. God does not give new birth just to leave us on our own in this journey through this broken world and step back and say, I hope they make it. No, God took charge of our salvation at the beginning before we existed, and God is securing its great goal in the present before we reach that final consummation. He's keeping our inheritance for us, and he's keeping us for our inheritance. And if we go on, verse 6, Peter, after laying this foundation of indicatives, he says, in this, in what I've just said, you've been born new, you have this living hope, you have an incorruptible inheritance, all ready for this day of salvation. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The imperative that connects to all these indicatives I have not even mentioned yet. The first imperative of this letter comes after, which so often, almost every New Testament letter, this is exactly what we see, after Peter builds this foundation of the source of our salvation, the benefits of our salvation, in this string of indicatives, of true statements about what God has done through Christ, who we are now in Him, and what we have. He says in verse 13, finally he gets to an imperative. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his first imperative. 
is that the church would set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope. Fix your minds. Go to the truths, the indicatives that we will receive this grace at the coming of Christ. So what? How does this matter to us? What clear principles come from this text? How does this bring us to an understanding, maybe in a different way of the gospel or in a fresher or refreshing way or a reminder? How does this bring us to understand Christ and his glory? How does this affect my affections for Christ, my surrender to his lordship? I think very first thing we would have to say is that Christ followers now living maybe in difficulties and suffering have to live in light of the future. Anticipation of the consummation of our salvation setting our minds fully and our hope fully on the grace that will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that Paul as he writes to the church of Thessalonica, he writes about the church. He's receiving this report, and he says, I've heard back that the word is sounding forth from you, reverberating, echoing. Also your faith, he says, that I am receiving these reports, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living God and to wait for his son who is coming from heaven. They had this anticipation And that's what caused them to serve this living God. As the gospel impacted them, they were waiting with anticipation for the return of Christ. Living in that anticipation of the consummation by looking back at these indicatives that Peter gives, it affects now. It affects us here and now. It affects us because right now, maybe our circumstances don't change. Maybe these circumstances that are difficult and hard, the trials, they just keep going, they continue, and maybe there's some more around the corner even. We run to gospel indicatives that God sustains us day by day when he doesn't remove the, God, the, the obstacles. Our living hope is grounded in Christ nonetheless, even when our circumstances don't change. He sustains us day by day. In community, he will do that. As I look out at families, again, in community, we walk this life to endure. We do it together. And God will sustain us day by day, even when he doesn't remove all the obstacles. And always, it's God's word that is our source to align our hearts back to him. Even if he doesn't answer our prayers our way. He is doing his work of completing in us what he started. This matters now. These indicative truths matter today because God is keeping us. God's faithfulness allows us to wait on him, even if that waiting has no end in sight. Our pursuit is to know the riches that we have in Christ, not the false security that we think we can get from this world and put Christ as our treasure. 
and to display him to the world that he is worth it. This is the message for Peter's readers, that scattered church. And this is the message for us today. God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And my weakness is an asset that directs my heart to God alone as my sustaining strength and my testimony. My weakness is an asset that directs my heart to God, Him alone being the one that sustains me by His power and by His strength. Why? So that my testimony points to Him alone, that He would receive glory. So in order to realize the worth of the anchor, we have to feel the stress of the storm. The indicatives set, uh, the indicatives that we've already looked at lead to the imperatives. Set your hope fully on another indicative, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The imperative is already grounded as Peter does, as Paul does, already grounded on these indicatives. The command is grounded, rooted in these indicatives. And then here, the very first imperative is on another indicative, on another true statement. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is no coasting in this life as a follower of Christ. There's no coasting. We can't coast and just play the game. This is about being word-centered, gospel-centered, believing and trusting in who God is and allowing that word of God to transform us as we come under the lordship of Christ and as we do that in community once again so that we will see Christ as our treasure and that we would feel and have affections for Christ alone as our great treasure. We have to take advantage of every opportunity to come sit under the word of God, to study God's word in our families, by ourselves as well, but sit under the power of God's word, to set our minds on truth that will then set our affections on Christ as our greatest treasure and possession. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 verses 4 through 9 connect with this so well that we are kept by God. Paul here says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched, past tense, you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this, verse 8, 1 Corinthians 1, 8. Who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into this fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are kept by God. 
He sustains us. That's the question of where is God right now? I really believe that for the readers of this letter from Peter, that's the question they would ask, and this is the answer that Peter gives them. Set Christ as your source of not just your salvation, but as your endurance. Meditate. Let those gospel indicatives soak, renew, um, just uh, soak and wash over you every day because that's what we need. We need to be reoriented, realigned to these gospel indicatives so that we can walk forward understanding that it's God who keeps us. He keeps our inheritance and he keeps us for our inheritance. We pray with me. Father, we, we come to a God who is holy, righteous in every way, a God who is the initiator of our salvation, the sustainer of it, as well as the one who will complete it. And we know that we, we have this in-between time between our new birth and the consummation of our salvation, that we, we wonder, where are you? What are you doing through trials and suffering and pain and grief, through these valleys that we walk through? But we know that you tell us, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, you yourself will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. To you be the dominion forever and ever. God, you are powerful and great, and I pray that your church would be renewed on this day in our hope, in our endurance, as we look at who you are, what you've accomplished, what you have promised for us, but not just that, but that we would understand in a very deep way what you are doing even now to sustain us and to keep us. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect sacrifice, your resurrection that you conquered sin and death. In you we have victory. In you we have life everlasting and great joy. Thank you for all that you've done, for opening our eyes up to this great gospel that we have. In Christ's name. Amen.